the American Cancer Society for years was saying that one in four people in America are going to get cancer. They have now said one in three, and we are moving toward one in two. So this is not a small number of people. There are tens of thousands of survivors, many of whom literally finished treatment and then asked that question, now what? And that's how I got to the title of my book. Welcome to the Drew Perlman Show. Think of this podcast as the antidote to the fear, the noise, and the talking heads in the news. The show features an entertaining blend of ancient wisdom, empowering ideas, and cutting-edge, healthy living science to optimize your health and your life. All right, so let's dive in and get started. Today's guest on the show is Dr. Amy Rothenberg. Amy has practiced naturopathic medicine since 1986 and is the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians 2017 Physician of the Year. She was the longtime medical editor for the Institute of Natural Medicine. When diagnosed with cancer in 2014, Dr. Rothenberg sought care at a renowned teaching hospital and also added naturopathic doctors who specialize in integrative oncology to create her medical dream team. Her book, You Finish Treatment, Now What? A Field Guide for Cancer Survivors is a roadmap for lifestyle and natural medicine to address health challenges that persist after care and to reduce risk of recurrence. She enjoys the good life in Western Massachusetts with longtime husband and collaborator, Dr. Paul Herskew. Am I saying... Your husband's yes, name, right. correct? Okay. You are. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Beautiful, beautiful. This episode's sponsor is Microbiome Labs. For the last nine years, Microbiome Labs has been committed to advancing understanding of the human microbiome. They're at the helm of innovation, putting new formulations and technology in the hands of healthcare practitioners and patients. Among many other novel innovations, MBL can now help improve the gut-brain connection with their ZenBiome Cope and ZenBiome Sleep products. Maybe it's been a while since you've re-examined your probiotic choices, the science around the microbiome or novel solutions that are coming out every day. Microbiome Labs will be here at the forefront of science, continuing to pioneer health in this space. For more about this strain and other gut microbiome products, just visit microbiomelabs.com. And as a special bonus for the Drew Perlman Show listeners out there, receive 15% off your total order from Microbiome Labs by just using the discount code that is in the show notes. So, Amy, let's start. Let's just start with this. You know, I'd love to get a get a sense of your your background. And by the way, you're the 2017 Physician of the Year. That's amazing. Yes, it's <laughs> quite an honor, you know, kind of voted on by your peers. Those are the best kind of awards to get. I probably was given that in, partly for my body of work, I suppose, over my career, but that was the year that culminated a several decade effort to license naturopathic doctors in the state of Massachusetts, which I spearheaded in the last several years to get over the finish line. Tough state to, to crack, but, but here we are. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Well, you know, let let's start with that, Amy. You know, talk about your background and and maybe what drew you into the world of naturopathic medicine versus say going into conventional conventional medicine. You bet. You bet. I love that I love that question. I have any opportunity to talk about my beloved profession, but I w- will say that 
I was like a lot of people who wind up in medicine. I just was a kid who wanted to be a doctor um, from the very earliest time. And I was kind of just humming along in that, that lane. And when I was 12, my father died in his sleep of a heart attack. And the conventional medical world really hadn't, you know, in hindsight, done much to help him. Uh, to prevent that, you know, heart disease, we know in 90% or so heart disease is lifestyle preventable. So um, there wasn't much happening in that realm in the 1970s, you know. And then a couple of years later, my mother died of breast cancer. And the conventional medical world really missed the boat with her. The treatments, she, I'm fairly certain she died from the treatments that she took, which, of course, by now, several decades later, they have gotten much better at dosing many, many more survivors of of early stage breast cancer and many other cancers, even at you know later stages in grading. So I got disillusioned and I went toward other things. I was always drawn to nature um, and biology, but I kept thinking, well, maybe I'll do something in the world of outdoor education. Uh, I was really into writing. I did some work around journalism, but I kept getting pulled back into the human sciences, nutrition, anatomy, physiology. I just was naturally interested in it. And I went to Antioch College, which is a wonderful school in Yellow Springs, Ohio, that instigated the whole concept of the co-op education. So in one of my jobs, I took a job at the University of Oregon Health Sciences Center in a laboratory. And I happened to fall into a living situation there with three naturopathic medical students. At the time, they were first, second, and third year students. At the first night around the dinner table, I heard what they were doing. And honestly, then that was 19, uh, must have been 1979. Uh, I didn't, had never heard of naturopath. I thought it had to do with trail maintenance, you know, or something like that <laughs> in the outdoors. And they started talking about what they were doing, what they were learning. And I was like, oh my God, this brings together everything I'm interested in. I was already living a very healthy lifestyle. I was a runner, I did yoga, I was a vegetarian. Uh, I was sort of fledgling, dipping a toe into the idea of meditating. And I, I feel like I found my people and I found my calling and I found my career. So I went back to Antioch. I finished up my prerequisites for medical school and I applied to naturopathic school. And I graduated college with a degree in biology in June. And I started naturopathic school in August um, in, in 1982. And I uh, met my husband the first day of, of, of school, uh, interestingly enough, although we didn't get together till the end of our fourth year, but I did meet him the first day of school. Anyway, it, it was, I feel really meant to be for me. It, it brought together my natural interests, uh, my sort of outgoing personality in terms of wanting to be with people, wanting to help people, and also feeling comfortable in a situation that wasn't the popular opinion. You know, it wasn't the popular paradigm of medicine at that time. I, I, it still isn't, I would say, although conventional medicine is a very big ship, it's moving very slowly toward preventive medicine, whole person medicine, natural medicines, very slowly. Uh, and this concept of integrative medicine is just beautiful. It brings the best of all worlds with regard to medical care. That's beautiful. And so when we were talking, when we were chatting on the phone, Amy, you know, you mentioned you're, you're not only a mat naturopath, but you're, did, did you say you're also a three-time cancer survivor? I am. It's true. I have a genetic mutation that I continuously tested negative for. I kept getting tested because there was a strong family history of cancer. Um, but as we know, those genetic tests do get better. And when I was diagnosed with early breast cancer in 2017, they asked me to get tested again. I had just been tested a couple of years before. 
they said, you know, the test has really gotten better. So uh, those of you who were tested before 2010, probably not very many of you listening at this point, if you haven't been retested, you might consider that. Um, and I had every conventional treatment approach that uh, is typical that we've all heard about from surgery to chemotherapy, to radiation, to immunotherapy. I've had a little bit of all of it, or a lot of some of it. Uh, and I am feeling fabulous. Nobody has to worry about me. I feel very good. I did a triathlon last Sunday. Um, I'm 62 years old. And I, I feel excellent. My, my mind is clear. My heart is open. My, my body, I don't have pain or discomfort, which is, you know, my goal for all my patients. Um, well, what you were just I really saying, walk, right? Before... I really walk the walk, if you know what I mean. So. Yeah, absolutely. You know, well, you were just saying to me before we got on the air that you just did like a, a mini triathlon, right? You were in the pool. At the gym. And... I do. I like to do that, you know, every <laughs> every once in a while just to kind of keep me honest. So so talk a little bit about so so you went through this, you went through this cancer protocol, you know, several times firsthand. Just going back, what what did you see as most lacking in the treatment? Maybe with the treatment itself, or in the post care treatment, what did you you know what sort of opened your eyes to wow this is maybe not you know this this the, the, this is maybe missing something? Yeah, there are two main areas I can speak to about that. The first one is during conventional cancer care, right from the get go. I think we need to have. The model needs to be, here you work with your trained medical oncologist who's the expert in treating cancer. And when you're done with that, maybe go out for lunch, go take a walk, and then the next visit you have that same day or that same week is with your naturopathic doctor who has expertise in treating cancer patients alongside conventional care, not instead of conventional care, but alongside, or with an integrative oncologist. There are medical doctors who are studying integrative medicine approaches to help enhance efficacy of treatment, prevent side effects of care, address side effects that do arise, and then afterward to what I like to call, quote unquote, mopping up from the impact of conventional cancer care. The second area has to do, if we pivot a little bit entirely to the cancer survivorship community. Now, you know, there are, the American Cancer Society for years was saying that one in four people in America is going to get cancer. They have now said one in three and we are moving toward one in two. So this is not a small number of people. There are tens of thousands of survivors, many of whom literally finished treatment and then asked that question, now what? And that's how I got to the title of my book. Um, literally let, left with symptoms from treatment Sometimes people have symptoms from cancer, but so much cancer these days is found early before there are lots and lots of symptoms. And many of the symptoms people have post-care really have to do with the treatment that they had, the treatment that was essential and that was life-saving. I took all of it, you know, yet it can leave people really, whether it's lymphedema, peripheral neuropathy, brain fog, fatigue, lack of satisfaction with intimacy and sex, just go, the, the list goes on. And there are natural medicine approaches to help address these symptoms that are left over from conventional cancer care. And the other part that's maybe even more important than that, there are ways to shift our internal environment to be less hospitable to, to either new cancers or metastatic disease. And these things are well-researched. There is good evidence for them. It's not like somebody kind of making it up and hoping and theorizing. There is very good evidence for, you know, the best example there would be uh, the role of exercise. 
And it's the number one treatment for the fatigue related to cancer. Uh, and many people have fatigue during treatment and for two, three or four months, but about 20% of people years later continue to struggle with fatigue, regardless of the severity of their disease or the treatments that they took. So we know that exercise for those people is number one treatment, but it's hard to get people motivated, especially if they don't feel well and they're tired. Um, but, you know, sharing the evidence and sharing the research, I think can help and meeting it out to people in bite-sized chunks that they can absorb get them to have some positive experiences, you know, to get into more positive spiral of health, uh, setting achievable goals, not overwhelming people. There's so much to do to feel well. And if you give it all out at once in one visit, you'll overwhelm people. So part of my strategy is, you know, slow but steady, aim low, aim long, be there. You know, you're not going to give up on anybody. You might take it slowly. This, these approaches work. Absolutely, Amy. What? What? Why do you? What do you attribute this? This rise in cancer rates, like you, like you're saying, and so many other chronic diseases. I mean, what do you? Th- what do you think's going on that the that the rates are, like you said, now uh, now are about one in two people. Yeah. Well, there, a big study came out a couple of months ago saying that eighty percent of chronic disease, and it was the big three: heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, were lifestyle preventable. is a very high number. So I think we are just not hitting the right marks for early childhood education related to healthy living and healthy habits. We don't have equal opportunity and access to healthy foods, open space, time to do the things that it takes to get and stay healthy. And I think that we are also battling in ever, not to be sound like Doomsday Dory over here, but an ever increasing number, uh, increasing number of chemicals in our environment that we, our body has to process. And some of them are obesogens and some of them are hormone disruptors and some of them are carcinogenic. Uh, every year, the, the organizations that determine what's carcinogenic, what, they're adding you know, scores and scores of more chemicals. Many of the things that we are exposed to are carcinogenic or impact our ability to function normally in all of our organ systems. And so we are naturally given at birth, part of our birthright is we have what are called our emunctory systems. The emunctories are the ones that help us get rid of the natural refuse of the digestive process, if you will. So having a bowel movement, urinating, perspiring, breathing. These are all our emunctories that we, that help us get rid of just the natural toxins of let alone any chemicals. They also work, and sometimes they start to be working overtime in helping us get rid of some of the chemicals that we come in contact with. So I always say to people, it's like the precautionary principle. If you think something might not be good for you, you probably shouldn't put it on your skin or eat it or give it to your child. Uh, and we have a lot of control of that. What, what we can control, our cleaning products, our laundry detergent, our personal care products, our food, we have control to some degree or other often depends on our zip code, which is totally inappropriate. And it's a a sign of the the sort of how determinants of health are such an important part of public health and people having access to clean water, safe places to exercise, healthy food. You know, we we know this concept of of food deserts. It's it's really, this is where, you know, we have to work on a lot of issues in public health, everything from the opioid crisis to 
uh, you know, pandemic-related things, but we also have to work on all these other features that impact both individual, family, and community health. Hmm. It's a long list of things we got to work on. Because um, you said to me on when we were having our conversation before this, that really the system, the system on some bigger level really needs to, you know, it seems to be breaking down. And uh, it, it really needs, we need an overhaul, I think. Is yeah, kinda... I mean, I think another, another whole layer that we could discuss, it has to do with the conventional medical world's over-prescribing of pharmaceuticals. Some of that's due to training. Some of it's due to patient demand. I don't know if you've watched any commercial television lately, but I, I don't watch TV, but if I'm in a hotel and I might flip through and wow, you know, the pharmaceutical advertisement is pretty extreme. And people hear about a drug or a condition they have and they walk in kind of demanding that drug. Right. Um, you know, we, of course we have a problem with overprescribing of pain medications helping lead to our opioid crisis, but we also have a, an epidemic of prescribing benzodiazepines, things to help people relax and to sleep. We have a problem prescribing stimulant medication for ADHD. And there are natural medicine approaches for all of those kinds of complaints. Um, it's not like a one stop, stop shopping. It, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes some expertise and guidance. But I think we have an epidemic of polypharmacy where people are on more than one drug um, something like 40% of people over 60 are on four or more medications. Then we tumble into what's considered polypharmacy. And there's very little education and training in deprescribing, basically how to help people get off of certain medications that they may not need or may not need as much of, or we can use this natural medicine approach. Maybe we won't need all these drugs. A lot of these drugs have side effects like cognitive decline. I mean, bad things like that. So I spend a lot of time with patients examining their drug list. I'm not interested in taking people off medication that they need. And some medications are life-saving. And I take several myself that are part of my cancer prevention routine. So we're always weighing the risk benefit with drugs. But it's important to know that the over-prescribing, over-medicated American public that's leading to additional and unnecessary other chronic ailments. Mm. Well said. So, so Amy, let, let's go back to your book for, for a moment. Um, someone listening right now, maybe they just went through a treatment or they're going through a treatment. You know, for, well, first of all, what, what inspired you to write the book? And, and then also, what do you most want readers to take away from your book? Okay, I'm going to answer the second question first. <laughs> what I want readers to take away when they read the book is that they have some power and some control over how they feel and their medical outcomes. It's not complete control because we have the, the universe and the laws of nature and our genetic inheritance, but we have quite a bit of control and we can make better decisions around lifestyle features and we can add certain natural medicine approaches to address symptoms that persist after care and to shift the internal environment as I talked about earlier. In terms of, um, so that, that is what I hope people get out of, of reading the book. And I also hope that people understand that they are part of a huge movement, that they're part of a community, they're part of a growing body of people that are taking their health and their own health to their own heart and their own responsibility and really making wonderful strides. And it, it, it's easier to do it if you know other people are doing it. 
and you have people to depend on and people to lean on and people to ask questions of. So that's number two. Number one, what inspired me to write the book is my own patient population. I treat a lot of people with cancer along with, I have a family practice, so I see a little bit of everything. When I, after I went through treatment, I would say the number of cancer patients in my practice grew. I had a little bit more street cred, if you will. Um, and I helped some people who then shared that with pe other people going through something similar. And this was the main question I got from people because when they finished treatment, they felt absolutely triumphant and euphoric, you know, maybe in a low energy kind of way, but they were so thrilled. And then not 10 minutes would pass or 10 days would pass. And all of a sudden the fear, the terror, the anxiety, you know, wh what now? Because the rallying cries had ended. The people bringing the meals has ended. The fighting stance where you're actually fighting against something has ended. Now what? Now what? You know, if I keep doing everything the same as I was doing before, why wouldn't this cancer come back? Now that, that is the logical question, you know? And if I took the uh, gestalt of those interactions I had with my patients, I started writing. And this book literally wrote itself. I, I have to say, I... I've put a lot of effort into it and a lot of time, but at each chapter was a natural evolution from the questions, the concerns, the approach from my patients, and then the approaches and the efficacy that I saw with the natural medicine approaches. And so I feel like it, a lot of this book is quite logical. As the deeper you get into the book, the more you realize that rising tides raise all ships. So some basic things like anti-inflammatory diet, daily exercise, stress management, stress reduction, a few work for a lot of what ails you. And then the rest of it, we focus in and individualize to the patient based on the kind of symptoms they present with. So, th so that's kind of what drove me to write the book and how it, how it evolved. I got stymied a couple times along the way uh, where I had to put it down and go away and do other things in my life, other creative pursuits, uh, and then come back to it, pick up the pen, proverbial pen, um, and, keep, and keep on going. In the midst of writing the book, I had the opportunity, uh, not a very nice one, to caretake my sister, who at that time was quite ill with metastatic disease and had had a stroke. So I do have a chapter in the book on as, around caregivers as survivors. Um, about half or 40 something percent of American people are now caretaking somebody in their home, a family member or friend. So we have a burgeoning population of caregivers, most of whom are unpaid, overworked, burned out. So I do speak to caregivers and I have a whole pretty organized list of things to consider and to do proactive if you are in, find yourself in a position of caregiving a loved one. Mm, that's beautiful. And um, so, so, Amy, what are some of your biggest go-to food and lifestyle interventions that you mentioned exercise, you, you mentioned a bunch of them, but if you had to, I mean, I know you can't speak for everybody, but some for, for every single person, maybe you can, but what are some of the biggies, the, the food and lifestyle interventions? Like if someone looking to get started changing their life, changing their lifestyle, yeah. Yeah. embracing yeah. a more healthier lifestyle, what are some of the biggies for you? Yeah. Okay. The first one is exercise. Exercise comes in three fashions. It comes in aerobic, it comes something stretching, and then something weight-bearing or resistance training. They're all important. If you can only choose one, choose aerobic. What we know about exercise is it raises your threshold for feeling stress. 
It also dissipates the stress that you have and it helps you be better perfused, meaning the, the blood is moving around to all your organs and organ systems. So all the other good decisions, which I'll talk about in a minute, create healthier blood in your system. Now you gotta get that blood to the places that it needs to go. And exercise is the main way to do that. In terms of diet, we always, you know, really for almost everything, what ails you, an anti-inflammatory diet is very, is, is the goal. What does that mean? It means not eating a lot of refined foods, processed foods, things that have excessive salt and sugar and other chemicals and preservatives in them. And focusing more on your lean proteins, could be fish, could be meat, could be chicken, could be eggs, um, and lots of vegetables. We, there's great research on the idea that it's not only the amount of vegetables that we eat, but the variety of vegetables that we eat. So I have a goal every day of eating 10 vegetables. People go, oh my God, you're nuts. How do you do that? The way I do it is in the morning, I always try to have one or two with breakfast. If I, if I don't have anything left over, I will eat a carrot or a stick of celery. Then I'm just knocking off one or two first thing. Then usually for lunch, I have a nice big salad. And in the salad, you can put five or six veggies. You've got a different, couple different kinds of lettuce in there. You can count those as two. Some tomatoes, some cucumbers. I like to grate beets. I love to grate carrots. I love to throw in olives. You get five or six there, and then you have one or two with dinner, and or maybe have a snack of a vegetable, maybe in hummus or with peanut butter or something like that in the middle of the day. And uh, I don't always reach ten, but I like having a goal. Um, and everybody else can try that too. A couple of pieces of fruit a day, and then a handful of nuts and seeds, and several tablespoons a day of healthy oil, olive oil, avocado oil avocado, eating avocado in general. Those are the mainstays of an anti-inflammatory diet. And people, I like to put food into people's diet instead of taking it away. Because I find, I don't want to be that sort of negative doctor. You can't have that, you can't have that, none of that, none of that. Um, I would say really reigning in alcohol use. We know that the pandemic was a terrible time for, in terms of rise of alcohol consumption in America. There was nothing else to do, you know. But we're getting on the other side of that now. We need to cut back on alcohol. For a cancer survivor, the amount of alcohol that is safe is literally zero. Um, most survivors really should not be drinking alcohol at all. Uh, if you're going to drink it all, for women, that means one drink a day. You know, one. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not prescribing people to do this, but if you're doing it, one drink a day. For men, two. That would be the maximum, particularly for survivors. Um, I would say the other lifestyle thing that's essential is to stop smoking, I know, and to stop vaping. People think vaping is better than smoking. Vaping is not better than smoking. They are both very bad for you, and they lead to all different kinds of cancers. There are many approaches. The American Cancer Society and the American Lung Society have, uh, Lung Association have terrific resources on their websites for support for stopping smoking. It's never too late to stop. I have patients who have cancer who still smoke and feel like, well, I already got cancer. What does it matter? And I will tell them it does matter. In many, many ways, it matters. First of all, it, it causes cancer. But second of all, it narrows the capillaries so that the, the chemo doesn't get to the cancer as well. You know, things like that. So please stop smoking if you're smoking. I know it's very, very hard. Nicotine is incredibly addictive. The tobacco companies knew this. They know this. There's been lawsuits against them, et cetera, et cetera. Don't, and don't start, make sure your kids don't start somehow, good luck with that. Um, thirdly, I would say managing stress. You know, I would say stress is killing us. You know, stress is killing us. We have the whole field of psychoneuroimmunology. So your mind affects your nervous system and your nervous system affects your immune system and around and around we go. So doing things that 
either you know sitting down with a loved one or with yourself and taking an honest look at your life. What are the biggest stressors in your life? And are there any that you can get rid of? Some people can't. Some, things, some stresses are fixed. You're a child with special needs. You have a big mortgage. You have, you know, or whatever it is. Um, so thinking about that. And if you can't get rid of the stress, then what are you doing for stress management? Is it exercise? Is it mindfulness meditation? Is it prayer? Is it a gratitude journal or gratitude practice? There are many ways that we can raise our threshold for having the stress impact us. And it's important to think about that and to do that. Wonderful. The other thing I would say is ensuring adequate sleep. Uh, we have really uh, another epidemic of insomnia in our country. So I have a whole chapter in my book on naturopathic approaches to insomnia, um, which I think is very important. We know that community and connection are essential. Many people were isolated to start, COVID didn't help that. So I will work one-on-one -on -one with my patients to help them figure out where can they get some connection and some people connection. Even the most introverted person needs some feeling of connection, some feeling of meaning in their life. So these are conversations that we have, we have with patients. Then there's a whole slew of botanical medicines and nutritional supplements and special anti-cancer foods that I delineate chapter by chapter in my book. All right. So more details. You just got to read the book. Yeah. <laughs> you get you get okay, it all right fair. there. That's if fair. You read, if you read Amy's book. So Amy, you live. Okay. So just just to bring this bring this whole thing full circle. So you live. Do you live in the Berkshires? You live in Western I live Mass. In, I live in Amherst. You live in Amherst. Okay. So yeah. Amy and I came to know each other through our mutual friends, Deb and Ricky and the beautiful seeds of salt. If you go back in the archives of the show, you can check out the episode with Deb and Ricky seeds of solidarity, their amazing farm, their garlic festival coming up. Um, although it'll probably be have happened by the time this episode is out. But um, so, so Amy, talk about nature in your life, the role oh, of yeah. being in nature. What, what is, how is that medicine for you? That's medicine for me because, you know, we, we know this idea of forest bathing and spending time in nature. We, we know it's good for us for a lot of different reasons. It's a getting, it's, first of all, it's time off of screens. Second of all, it means you're probably moving in some way to get there and enjoy it. So that's not being sedentary, which is great. And then we have all the benefit of trees and other plants, basically breathing and that beautiful air that we find in natural places. I spend a lot of time at, at a, I'm very blessed to be a member of a community supported agriculture project in my town. And I love the organic food that's available there. That's quite affordable uh, when broken down by the amount of food you get for what you pay. Uh, but they also grow flowers. And I spend a not small amount of time picking flowers through the spring, summer and fall and making beautiful bouquets to give away. I pick a lot of drying flowers to dry. This is another way to be in nature for me. The peace that's around there, the sound of the birds, watching butterflies land on plants. It's, it's just healing in a way. And you know, we've known this um, just sort of personally, many of us spending time hiking and um, riding a bike in a beautiful area, you know, through the bike path in our town is like a nature, an eight mile nature trail. The beaver pond over there, you know, and the pine forest over there, it's just phenomenal. 
But now there's research to back it up. This concept of forest bathing is like, it's very popular. And you can hire someone to take you into the forest and do a forest bathing experience. Our local Hitchcock Center here is having a forest bathing afternoon with somebody who's credentialed in this. Of course, now there are credentials for this, but it's also just enough to go for a walk. And city parks are also a beautiful natural area. And I feel like many communities got the memo. You know, they got the memo. Yes, we need to plant more trees. We need to have access, give everybody access to open spaces. When you think about it, sitting by a lake, the open space, going to the ocean, it's healing for the soul, it's healing for the spirit. I also happen to live at the bottom of a beautiful uh, little mountain in South Amherst here. And it is a kind of sanctuary, sanctuary in time and space up there. Mm, beautiful. Well, I can see your, you know, Unfortunately, people aren't going to be able to see this. They're only going to listen to it. But I can see Amy's, I think your backyard there. Is it behind you? It's beautiful. Looks, looks... Thank you. That's, that we have a little peach orchard. Peach pears grow raspberries, grapes, blueberries, um, a few apple trees. Yeah, we, we, it's, the soil is beautiful here. We tend to it. And we have a little hoop house out there. I don't know if you can see, which is mostly, mostly a kale house. We mostly grow kale in there. Certain herbs and spices that can take the heat. And we have a whole lavender patch. My, my husband is really, uh, he's from Romania, but I think he would really love to live in Italy. We have a whole lavender area and we have about 25 fig trees, uh, which oh, I, wow. it's a little too cold to really grow them well here, but we're trying. <laughs> we're trying. And oh, that's another that's... way to be in nature, is to grow things and watch things grow. I have a little yeah. patch of microgreens that I keep going all year. Um, first out, outside of the good weather and then move it inside. So. Love that. Wow. Well, next time we got to do an interview back in the, in your backyard because uh, we can yeah. just pick from the blueberries and the, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah. your husband's lavender. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so um, Amy, you know, if someone is listening right now and they are feeling a little powerless and hopeless, I mean, some of the things we've you know, you've mentioned, you know, there's some big issues. There's a lot of confusion with information that's out there, health information, inundated, like you said, with pharmaceuticals on, on TV. Um, if they were with you and they're feeling a little powerless and hopeless and they were sitting with you, what might you tell them? Well, that's a beautiful question. I have a chapter in the book, which is entitled how to talk so your oncologist listens and listens so your oncologist talks. This is borrowed from a very famous parenting book, How to Talk So Your Kids Listen and Listen So Your Kids Talk by Barbara Maslish, my parenting Bible. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's a few ways I would kind of come to a patient like that. The first one is I would model putting them in charge of decision-making. So if I had something I want or need or believe a patient should do, I will be very tactful around presenting it in a way that they can make some choices and do the right thing. So that empowers people when they are making their own decisions about their health care. That can be empowering. So in other words, if I said to a person, like, I, I need you to stop, um, you know, you're, you're drinking too much soda. It's loaded with sugar. It's empty calories. It's not great for your bones. You already have osteoporosis. I need you, we need to figure out another kind of drink for you. And then let's, let's brainstorm drinks that you've liked in the past or that you'd be willing to try. It engages the person in thinking about something. First, you give them the information, then there's some actionable steps and you decide what's gonna work best for you. Things like that. 
But it's also true that to have a cancer diagnosis, either going through treatment or afterward as a survivor, there is a sense of powerlessness. When you're laying in that machine to get a scan, you know, it's very binary. You either have cancer or you don't have cancer. And you can, you can feel very powerless in that. So I do a lot of talking with my patients around, you know, regardless of what the outcomes are at this moment, we are going to work together and we're going to have you feel as best as you can. We're going to optimize treatments if that's the path. If you've got a good report, then we're going to pivot and we're going to go on to all the things you can do to regain your mental clarity or your energy or your physical capacity, et cetera. So I feel like the, the main concept here is to identify the elephant in the room. If the elephant in the room is feeling powerless, which often goes along with anxiety, depression, irritability, and insomnia, those four things come together. If somebody is in that sort of swirl, like that, the first thing is to acknowledge it, to name it, and then to, to just pointedly say, okay, I think this is, this is part of where you are right now. First of all, normalize it, very typical for you in your situation. And I'm gonna help you take back small parts of, of the power and your self-agency to move forward. So there, I have a, a ton of suggestions in the book about how to take back some of the power. Something as simple as meeting your doctors fully dressed. And it sounds silly, almost. But then the doctor seeing you first as a person and second as a patient, which is how every patient should be seen, regardless of what their complaints are. Um, being sure that you bring somebody with you to every visit. It's too overwhelming to take in all the information. And if you're already feeling overwhelmed, it's like a, you know, it's like that cup that's already full. Some, it, it, everything overflows and you don't remember anything. So bring somebody with you, arrive at every visit with your questions and concerns written out and say, first off, I have some questions and things I want to be sure we save time for. Because I don't know, last time you went to the doctor, but there have been recent studies. I mean, you can guess, how long do you think it is before a doctor interrupts a patient when the patient starts to talk? <laughs> that? Probably pretty, pretty quickly. <laughs> 11 seconds. 11 seconds. So it's, you can't say too much in 11 seconds. I mean, I probably could say that kind of fast. <laughs> but most people, you can't get very much out there. So I think empowering people in the office setting is very important. And then when they get home and they have to do things, it goes back to something I touched on earlier, is creating a plan for a patient that is where they can, where they can win. They can have success. They can start to feel better. You know, when you get somebody in a positive spiral of health and they have more energy, then they can take the time to cut those vegetables. And when they feel more mental clarity, they can take the time to get back to that hobby or crafting or whatever that they used to like that gave them joy and pleasure and connection and meaning. And so for me, I'm always trying to identify what is the thing that is most limiting to this patient at this moment in time. And if I can understand that, then I can orchestrate my recommendations to meet that, as opposed to me assuming, you know, you know what they say, when you, when you assume you make an ass out of you and me, same thing for every doctor. It's not for me to assume what this person needs to do or what we need to address. It's for me to determine through questioning and compassion and active listening, what it is that most concerns them and then address that. Mm, beautiful. Amy, a final question here that I ask people on the show. If you had the opportunity to travel back in time, 50 years or so, 
what words of wisdom would your current self share with your younger self? Mm, my current self to share with my younger self. I would say um, you're you're about to make a really good decision with your work. Stay with it. Don't overwork. Be sure to keep your priorities on your family and your friends, and you're going to have a beautiful life. Amazing. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Um, Amy, where where can people go if they want to maybe connect with you, learn about you, learn about getting your book? Um, yeah. Where should they go to uh, to do all that? Yeah, they can go to my author website, which is dramyrothenberg.com. It's D-R-A-M-Y Rothenberg, all one word, at, at um, .com, dramyrothenberg.com. And uh, my, my practice is in Northampton, Massachusetts. You can find me online. And you can order the book anywhere books are sold. It's being distributed. I have a wonderful traditional publishing contract and a wonderful publisher, and it's being distributed by Ingram. So you can go into any bookstore and order this book, and they can have it for you. If you like to order online, we're encouraging people to order it through Bookshop or IndieBound. Um, and then you can go over to the big time names like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, leave a nice review or five stars or whatever have what have you. Um, you know, you can also buy the book on Amazon if you, if you like. This book comes in both uh, a soft cover, I have right here. So it's so beautiful. It has a beautiful soft. I don't know what this material is. It's just it feels <laughs> nice in your hand. I'm so thrilled with that. It's also hardcover. If anybody's interested in hardcover. And I also read the book for Audible, and it's also available as an ebook. So any whatever format works best for you, you can find the book. And I'm thrilled to bring this information to the public. I, I hope it will have a positive impact on so many people's lives. Oh, I think it will. And I think people that heard your interview today are gonna are gonna run out and get it for maybe for themselves or a loved one or someone. But um, we'll, we'll put the. Um, We'll put the, the this in the show notes as well to link up so okay, people yeah. want to if people want to grab a copy and check it out um, and connect with I you. I will also send you, um, Drew. I, if if you're good with it, I'll also send you that you can include in the um, show notes a, a couple of other links and links to my social media. If anybody wants to follow me, I do try to post often on topics of interest in natural medicine and to give a natural integrative medicine perspective on items in the news. Um, so if anybody would like to follow me, we'd love to have you and lots of good freebies that we can like to give away and also have a lot of recipes on my author's site. I have a couple hundred recipes on my author's site, so you can find some yummy things there. Wonderful. Amy, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. This was great. Thank you so much, Drew. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. Keep up the great work. Thank you for listening to The Drew Perlman Show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. In the words of Mark Twain, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, and catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover, and stay well, everyone.